Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And this week I talked to the sidekick from the Great Radio Legends program, Doug Mulray, way back in the Triple M days of the 1980s and 1990s. His name is Dave Gibson. And he was the voice behind those great characters, Mr. Fimey, Roland Rollador, or Roland Rollador's Rollador's, Jack, Jack Africa, Gloria, and many others. We go back in time and remember those Mulray days when Doug used to top the Sydney ratings uh, on the radio scene in Sydney. Yep. And then the CEO of the RCSA, we look at a bill that uh, was put before Parliament to try and help the payments for casuals and as poor blighters on working for Deliveroo and Uber and all those sorts of people. There's a bill put the Parliament to try and sort out a lot of problems with our wages that are paid to these people. But unfortunately, the bill didn't really make it across the line. We find out why with an expert. The CEO, as I say, Charles Cameron of the RCSA. Well, today I'm talking to the legend who worked with the legend of Australian radio, Doug Mulray. His name is Dave Gibson, and I see this as a legend unmasked. Welcome, <laughs> Dave Gibson. G'day, Switz. Now, and I should put position in the whole thing that when uh, Dave was um, Doug Mulray's sidekick, sidekick fair. Yeah, I guess we called you sidekick. You were equal partner in the show. Oh, I wouldn't say equal partner, but no, sidekick I, I'm happy with. Yeah, yeah okay. no, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So certainly, and I was the finance man at yes. Triple M in those days, and I used to see you and Doug working uh, together, and it was an outrageously funny um, combination you and Doug had. Yeah. And I won't get, get behind it that relationship you had and because people always ask me what was it like working with Doug and, and where is he now and what is he doing and all that sort of stuff so his his legendary status remains and I thought it's a good chance for two people like you and me who know him and you know him a lot better than I do sure. you know, to, to give some revelations about what that experience was like sure sure spill my guts yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think you'd say yes to it but <laughs> I think you've grown you've grown with wisdom over sure, you okay. sure so Gibbo where, where did Dave Gibson come from before he started working with Doug it's my first saying with Doug Andrew was the Andrew Denton was the yes. sidekick and then Andrew got his own TV show yeah. and you came up but what were you doing before then? I was doing voiceovers I'd started off doing I was at uni and I'd, I'd done reviews there mm. and thought oh I'm not bad at this mm. writing and, and, and performing mm. and um, while I was at uni, I'd just done a few stand-up gigs mm. at the Sydney Comedy Store. This right. is in the time of Rodney Rood, yeah. Ostentatious, George Smilovich, yeah. Vince Sorrenti, Keith Scott. What a team. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I, although I was a feature act there, I very soon came to realise that it, it was causing me a lot of stress. That yeah, I heard that you didn't like going stand. You just vomit, did, didn't I you? Did, I used to throw up before gigs. <laughs> uh, I developed an ulcer. I was, uh, yeah, and it was basically I didn't like being Dave Gibson. Mm. I was used to being characters, you know, and, and I used to, I edited, co-edited Tharunka at New South South Wales Uni for a couple of years. Yeah, left wing. I, so -so absolutely. <laughs> rabid. And we and I, I wrote as various characters mm. as that and they were quite popular. And I, I sort of found, found that that was what made me comfortable and I was good at it at the same time. Mm. So uh, Keith Scott, the, you know, man of a thousand voices, yeah. 
Um, he was a stand-up uh, as, as well. And he said, oh, you do a lot of uh, voices in, in your act, like mm. different silly voices. And he said, um, have you ever thought about doing voiceovers? Mm. And I went, hell no, you know, mm. ex the runker, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do no. McDonald's I'm ads. I'm bigger and better than you that. Know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, he said, working for $50 a week at a bottle shop. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, he said, "Well, come along to one." So he took me along to one. It was a McDonald's ad, and I right. it was, and I went, "Oh, there you go." And uh, and philosophically, you would have been against McDonald's. Well, yeah. And right. he said two words. He had to. He had to be Mayor McFeast, who was the voice of Ed Wynn, the American comedian. Oh, yes, yes. Had one yes to speak like that, <laughs> and he, all he had to say was "Love a burger," <laughs> and he said it twice, "Love a burger," and. They said, thanks, Keith. He walked down. I said, what'd you get for that? This is 1982. He said, 250 bucks. <laughs> I said, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, because 250 then it would be about 2,000 then. Oh, no, but I mean. But I think the purchasing was, power I'm thinking about. Uh, sure. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. The purchasing power. Um, well, I, I suppose a, a, a weekly wage was probably about, you know, 15 yeah. Fifteen thousand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, fifteen thousand a year or something like that. Three hundred twenty. Yeah. So yeah. So I did that. Uh, started in about in late eighty three, mm. and very quickly um, started doing more and more. I had a great agent. Mm. Keith's father was Ron Scott, yeah. RMK, and it was a great agency. And it was just voiceovers. It wasn't an acting agent. Mm. All I did was voiceovers, mm. and. Um, you know, I started off doing a couple of week and before long I was doing like one or two a day and, and sometimes more. Mm. So I was um, – and and during that time, it, it were probably the most famous thing I did was the Gobble Dock, the yeah. Smith's Crisps. Okay. That was in 87. Can you still do it, Gibber? Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, yes you I can. can. And so I was doing that and I knew – uh, Andrew Denton, mm. socially, mm. and um, he'd seen me do stand-up. And, in fact, the first time I met him, he came out of the gloom and said, oh, I saw your act, I really like it, mm. you know. And mm. I thought, oh, I had Was no Andrew idea. well known then? No, no. Had had he been, was he working with Doug as the... No, uh, no, I don't think even boy then. Boy genius of indoor... Andrew, the boy genius of indoor, indoor cricket. cricket. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and he came up and said, oh, you know, I, I really love your stuff and... Mm. Um, uh, anyway, the guy that was – Andrew was on air with Doug and he was just as Andrew. Mm. Although he started – he sort of was doing a voice like that and then after a while because he was doing TV they said, look, you're Andrew Denton, just yeah. talk like Andrew. Yeah. Um, and there was a guy called uh, Jeff Kelso who was doing – because Andrew couldn't do voices and mm. Doug needed character voices for the anti-ads. Yeah. And Jeff Kelso was the guy doing them. Mm. Ken Sterling was before that. He was doing them. Yeah. Um, Jeff decided to leave and I got the call um, from Doug and said, mate, Kelso's left. Um, I'd, you know, I'd, uh, Andrew's, you know, said, mate, uh, oh, no, sorry, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, Doug said to Andrew, I need a guy that understands commercials and can do lots of character voices. Yep. And Andrew said, I got just the guy. Right. So I, I turned up and then Doug and I started for a whole year, this is 88, started doing uh, all these anti-ads. Yeah. And we just, the moment we worked together, we had the rhythm. Mm. I could be his straight man, he could be my straight man. We could just, you know, you could throw anything at us 
and we just had a great rhythm together. Mm. So, and this is before you were actually on air. Yes, but these were like recorded yeah, ads for yeah, the show. Yeah, and Can then you- and then at the end of '88, I got the call, mm. and it was Doug saying, "Mate, uh, Ando's is leaving to go to television exclusively. Do you want to step in?" Mm. And I said. No. <laughs> did you, did you, were you a bit nervous about the idea? I said, absolutely not. Yeah. Never. Yeah, I mean, stepping into, like, going on Doug's show yeah. live and stepping Rating into over it. 20% of the Sydney audience. Oh, not, not at that point, but, yeah. but still. Oh, with you? We came well, around. yeah, it did. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he said, uh, no, uh, mate, uh, you know, have a think about it. Mm. So I sort of, oh, I ummed and ahed, you know, I was making a, you know, a, like a lot of money on voiceovers. Yeah, with less pressure. Or, yeah, no pressure. And um, so he said, look, start – so I started mid-February in 89 with Andrew. Mm. Andrew and stayed there for a month and then after – in mid-March, Andrew left mm. and it was just me. Mm. And um, But from the word go, I wasn't Dave Gibson. Mm. Um, I did uh, – I was Lardass – uh, <laughs> he, spoke, he spoke like that. Uh, yeah. And Mr. Smiley. Yeah. And uh, so I, we... Jack Africa was one. Well, what happened then was I'd, I'd sometimes jump on the... I'd go next door mm. and, and, and into the office and phone the station because Doug didn't have callers. Mm. Um, he'd have sometimes guests on the phone, but he never had... Like, he'd never yeah. take callers from yeah. punters. Yeah. So what I started doing was pretend to be punters or mm. pretend to be people. Yeah. Um, at the time... Uh, I started doing John Howard because he was opposition leader and this is the time with Andrew Peacock and, and, mm. that, and all that. Yeah. So I was doing, you know, basically Keith Scotch, uh, uh, John Howard. <laughs> oh, no fair. He was like a little school kid. Oh, easy peasy, Japanese, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, then... And, and and doing a few different characters. Jack Africa became yeah, one. But my favourite giver, because I I was then editing the small business magazine, Australian Small Business Magazine. Right. Your roll and roller door of roll and roller doors, <laughs> roller doors. That was the best because that was the, a guy promoting his business. Yeah. And, and yeah. Can you give us another, another roll? Uh, uh, yeah, Mulray. This is roll and roller door from roll and roller doors, roller doors here. Let me let me tell you a few things, son of mine. What are you, some sort of communist? Don't you like me advertising? And um, he was based on a guy, a, a wine rep. I won't yeah. mention his name that I, yeah. when I was working at a bottle shop, this yeah. guy used to come in. You're mad if you don't buy this wine, it'll walk out the door. <laughs> That's terrific. But, and small business people listening to the oh, time absolutely. will love that yeah, character. Yeah. yeah. Jack Africa was the other one, the uh, the Chooks Mullows, and he used to take all the red pills and, yes. all, and the green pills, and um, and uh, the other one, and I and, and well, and I wrote all of those, and I wrote all of those while the show was going, um, which looking back now was insane, but yeah. that's just the way I did it. Well, I can remember because my, my reports were on 
uh, fairly early in the morning, seven, seven thirty or something, mm. and and I would walk out, and you'd be leaning on the. You know, I love it because the technology <laughs> the, difference. You'd be leaning the on photocopy a photocopy sheet, yeah. writing it out by hand. Yes, and it was like Doug says, Doug, I say, yeah, Doug, <laughs> dot dot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you photocopy I, it and take the paper in. By the time I got to the photocopier, it was down to the line. It was coming into the eight thirty news, <laughs> and it was like. God, send me, send me a tag, please, Jesus. And um, uh, because it was like it, it was a weird way of writing, I'd sort of do it a line at a time mm. because they had to be neat. Yeah. My, my handwriting was almost illegible, so I had to write really neatly first time. And some, sometimes Doug wouldn't have even seen what he was Sometimes say. not. So yeah. it, they needed to be legible. Mm. There needed to be not arrows and crosses and mistakes. So it was a weird way of writing, but it worked for me. Mm. Um, and then uh, uh, Mr. Fimey. Yeah, Mr. You Fimey. son of a bitch. <laughs> he was um, some. Uh, he was based, we don't name who it was based on, <laughs> but a, a very well-known billionaire who yes. owned um, shopping centres and then went on and bought at a TV station. station. Yes. And didn't do very well no, out No, he didn't. He didn't. And poor Larry Emdo was a was and and some Bob Shank or something, some American. Oh, Bob Shanks came out to yeah. do he was a Canadian. He came out to do like to look after s- him, stunt it? television. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, with the green goo and, and yeah. stuff like that. But but Emdo got copped a lot of bagging because he did he didn't perform on the some program? Like I don't pro- remember oh, that. Okay. And then of course the most probably the most controversial mm. Was uh, Gloria? Mm. Um, I think yes. we, we can say, look, it was, it was it was clearly based on Alan Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, Doug and I were driving back one very w- early one morning from his farm, mm. and we listened into Jones, who was mm. on at five thirty, right, and uh, suddenly heard da 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 the Laura Brannigan's right. yeah, Gloria, right. yeah. and we were sort of thinking of a way. So he, Alan had had that contretemps in uh, yeah. in uh, London, yeah. and we were trying to think of a way to do. And some, and we went, Gloria, how funny! What a what a what a weird, um, what a weird thing to play at the beginning of your show. And we said, well, we're calling Gloria. Yeah. So Gloria was absolutely very much sort of based on Alan, and <laughs> that he was that uh, uh, very sort of self hating um, uh, sort of guy, and he would. Um, did, he, was he a radio personality? Yes, he worked for a station called 2LSN Radio. Listen! <laughs> radio, radio for the partially deaf. But we had we had a lot of fun with that. And yeah. I had it and I, I used to love writing them. Mm. Um, I really discovered a deep love of writing. Yeah. I guess your Thurunka days meant that you were interested in satire as well. And a lot of yeah. these pieces were satirical pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they were aimed, they were aimed, aimed sometimes quite high, sometimes quite low. Okay. Now, now Gibbo, um, so what was it like working with Doug? Because there was a pressure environment and ratings were really important in those days. Well, they still are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the- remember too, we had four, they have uh, nine ratings periods a year now. Mm. Uh, we had four, so they, they were incredibly important. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, it wasn't like, well, we'll get them next time. Uh, with four a year, um, there was considerably more pressure. Mm. And um, 
we well, you know, and and so Doug was on the whole a delight to work with. We got on really well. We we both had a deep, as he would say, a deep and gorgeous thirst. Uh, we loved a lunch, yeah. and uh, and a few other things besides. Yeah. And um, the lifestyle of the young and courageous. I young and courageous. Yeah. Well, Doug was. I was. Uh, Doug's. I think ten. In his thirties, wasn't he? Doug was late. Thir- Doug was a. F- 51 baby, I'm a 58. So, you know, I was about 30, 31. So he was just going to 40. Mm. So, yeah, we were young guys, we, you know, and we, we had a lot of fun. But, and, but look, Doug, Doug was great. Sometimes the pressures and the responsibilities mm. um, could tell on him and, and he could be, uh, you know, uh, sometimes quite difficult. Mm. Um, but that was always ne- never, um, never without reason. Yeah, and I think anyone who's never been in that sort of position, having to front up every morning, be funny, be entertaining, because you you had to do the same thing as well. But he was also on microphone, yeah, doing that kind of thing. You've got so a lot a of real voices. pressure job. You've got it? a lot of voices, um, sometimes not particularly smart or qualified voices. In your ear mm. all the time, going, oh, don't do it that way, do it this way. Yeah, um, and uh, he that could drive him insane. Mm. Sometimes he could really, really lose it. Yeah, I remember once he gave it to a salesperson mm. who I think he said would sell her grandmother into captivity <laughs> if she could get it and make, make a nice buck out of it. Well, d- yeah, Doug. I mean, when you've been bollocked by Doug, <laughs> you've been bollocked. Yes. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah, I was. I never got a. I never got a force ten bollocking. Mm. You know, there'd be small like mm. like Frank did. Frank Vincent used to get some real Frank bollocking. Frank Vincent got some <laughs> walked into them, <laughs> eyes wide shut. <laughs> um, but no, he. Um, you know, if 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 he if you were doing something that that annoyed him, he mm. wasn't. You know, he wouldn't bottle it up. No, um, he didn't bottle bottle things up. Yeah. Once I I came in and unwisely. Criticised him and Whitey talking about Ferraris and Mercedes, and he then decided to give me a lesson, Moro style, on what he thought was appropriate on his radio program. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I've seen that done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you you, there'd always be that, like somebody go, oh, 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 go, oh, great. oh no, why is that? It was just be, you'd, you'd sort of you'd, you'd actually physically move back because you didn't want to be. In the spray area. Oh, you know? I know, I know. Okay. But, yeah, you... but most of the time, it was we just had fun. We yeah. we really did, and and I, you know, I think that, um, and I'm not sh- quite sure how, but you just know when, you know, a lot of shows now they're sort of they're giggly shows where everybody says, "Oh, mate, oh, you can't say yeah. that. Oh, ho, ho. Yeah. we'll never get away with that." Um, it's a lot of it's confected, and mm. with. With us, um, it was, you know, it, it, we were having a good day. Mm. Um, it was actually a comedy show with music, wasn't it? And of course, I was sure. there. I was there for some serious stuff. But the well, bottom line, it was it was a collage of entertaining stuff. Yeah, but the the, the beauty of you, I mean, we had Frank on sport, you mm. doing finance, mm. Whitey doing the news. Mm. Um, we uh, uh, reggae, Mark Warren, then Reggae Ellis, mm. and then uh, Reg Prasad yeah. doing the surf. Mm. But everyone brought, you know, because it was Doug. There was a kind of a, a free and easy, loose thing. Like, well, let's yeah, we can we can push the 
We can push the boundaries on this a bit. You mm. certainly did. Yeah. Well, when they let me do the big game, the, on I Fridays. was just going to say the big game yeah. was 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 must must listen. Well, you have must must watch TV. What was this must listen, listen radio? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, that was great. And you were clearly having a ball. Oh, fantastic! I think it was a great learning experience because if you come up with a good idea. They at least give you a chance to to give it a go, and yeah. I think that was Doug had a good ear, mm. and the thing was if if he go look, just have, you know, have fun with it. Mm. The, my favourite five words, but but you know, just have fun with it. Mm. But um, if it wasn't working, Doug would immediately know and go, yeah, well, let's not do that again, yeah. or yeah. you know, or you'd go to him and go, I'm thinking of this, and you go, no, yeah. no, that that won't work. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you your most embarrassing moment you had working with Doug. Mine was early in the piece when I was – I'd never done uh, radio before in that kind of format. I'd, I'd answer questions on radio and things like that, but never actually doing a spot. So when David Watt left the newsroom, I went in there to practice my editorial piece before I recorded <laughs> it, right? But while he had left the light, the uh, the mic on, which meant that Doug was doing something and all of a sudden I said um, – <laughs> You know, the, the parliamentary committee into blah, 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 blah. And Doug said, what is this? Have I got a radio? <laughs> so, so I always remember that. Gibbo, did you have a, a similar new boy to radio experience that you can remember? Or, I, you, or you were instantly professional? I remember actually, now that you mentioned it, um, as Mr Smiley, that you, you got used to Doug running with stuff. Hmm. And I think I'd sort of – I. I started saying something and I really didn't have an end point. And it was like, well, well, Doug, I'll pick it up. But I started talking. I can't even remember what it was about, but I started talking and I could see Doug going, all right, you know, you started it. Let's see you finish it. And I. And you could tell his face, couldn't you? you could it was, him. yeah, it was just that look, <laughs> that cold look <laughs> in his eyes going, well, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. You expect me to pick you up. Wherever you fall, this is going to be a good uh, a good lesson, young man. Yeah. And I sort of I managed to just scramble just to an end to something. Yeah. And he went good and and and, and went to a song yeah. and looked at me. I was probably you know sweaty and yeah. red, and went. You see, you don't just you know. <laughs> it's not <laughs> do, as easy as your you look. Don't, don't just look. do that, you yeah. know. And it was like, oh my. God, it was a terrible feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, when people say to me, "What was it like working with Doug?" Um, how would you how would you answer that question? Uh, always, I mean, not always. You know, well, mostly fun, mm. um, but always educational. Mm. Um, I we did a the. Um, a, Triple M did a tribute to him, a video tribute, and gave him an award or the ACRAs or the, the radio awards. He mm. got one recently. Yeah. And um, a few of us, Rod Muir, myself, Andrew Denton and Charlie Fox, who mm. was the PD there, yep. um, all did a video, you know, Hi Doug and, you know, da-da-da, my memories and the thing. And uh, I said, you know, someone says to you, oh, uh, who taught you guitar? You say, oh, Hendrix. Mm. Somebody says to me, who taught you radio? I go, Doug Mulray. Mm. And um, he was a maestro. Yeah. He, he, he was possessed of, of genius. Mm. And, and 
to be able to, well, you know, sit at his feet, but also to work with him to be part of that process, mm. all those different processes, because, you know, there was live radio, there was also pre-recorded, mm. um, with him always, you know, uh, this, this, this guiding guiding light mm. um, was just a, an amazing yeah. opportunity. Yeah, we were privileged. If, if someone asked me that, and people have asked me that, I've said, you know, the funny thing is that Doug created a, um, um, a feeling that this was just a bunch of, Guys and and women, you know, because you know we had uh, sure, yeah, yeah. we had um, Miss Lizzie and Fifi, Fifi, and, yeah. and uh, there was uh, uh, don't forget uh, Faludia, the Faludia, but Bogdan's girlfriend, who was that? Oh, Danuta, not, yeah, not Jiggy Jiggy again. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, the great Robbie Moore, yes, yeah, yeah. and so all these great characters. But from my point of view, is that it seemed like a bunch of. People just having fun, but it was enormous professionalism. It was that if you that, did, no, yeah. not, he taught me professionalism. Sure, that if you didn't deliver, yeah, you, know, you could do it any way you like. But when the the mic went on, yeah, if it was shit, you're going to be yeah. talked to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Or looked at. It was. It was. <laughs> um. Um. He, you had the the. You know, he let you have your head. Mm. Uh, but if you if you strayed too far, if yeah. you didn't deliver, mm. you know, well, you learned a lesson. Mm. You really did. It wasn't like, well, we'll do better tomorrow. It was like, well, where did you go wrong? Um, or, you know, I kind of told you to do it this way and you didn't and you mm. see what happened there. Mm. Do you think it's a great pity that he doesn't want to do radio again? I, we know why he doesn't want to do it, but, gee, a lot of people out there would love him to do radio. Oh, sure. Mm. You know, if, if he was coming back, I'd do it, you mm. know. But, but I think um, – Look, I th- you know, he's he's he's, uh, he's he he had his time, mm. and he's. I guess great footballers don't come back. It, exactly, he's mm. um he's uh you know enjoying his time. He's mm. really you know he he he's deserved. Uh, he really deserves um a, a a fun retirement. Now, when you left Doug, I recall you went to Brisbane. And you went, you were doing, well, my mind was appearing Gibson and Duckworth show with Rob Duckworth. Yeah, sure. We did that for a couple of years, came yeah. back down to Sydney in 94 with Sammy Power, mm. the late, great Sammy Power. Yeah. Uh, then I left after a year there. And then in 96, into 96, Denton came out of the blue mm. and said, uh, I got. I I want to work with you, mm. and I said, just tell me it's anything but triple M breakfast. And <laughs> it was. It was. It's triple M breakfast. Yeah. I asked you not to tell me that, but it was. He said, look, it's you, me, and Amanda, mm. and um, it was great. Mm. It was just. It was great. We Good did people. Five. I did five years. I think. I know he did five years, mm. and uh, yeah, stayed for five years. Did you? That. Did you resurrect any of Doug characters, or did you create new characters? For I you? did. Um, funnily enough. Alan Jones. Mm. Andrew said, no more Gloria. Mm. He's Alan Jones. Mm. So obviously the scripts, my scripts had to be more, more a, little, legally. a little careful, yeah. a little more careful. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, no, that was about it. Have and you ever I, met Alan? Sorry? Have you ever met Alan? I've, I worked for a couple of years part-time doing 2CH Breakfast. Yeah. So GB was down the, yes, down the right. hall yeah. Yeah. and I would – be in the studio and I'd go down to the kitchen, which is right outside his, his yeah. studio door, and I'd see his profile and think – and I see, at one point he walked down the corridor and just saw me and just went, hello, uh, hello. <laughs> oh, God, I don't think he knows what I look like. <laughs> 
Very lucky. That would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, but you, you said to me when you started that job up in Brisbane, I said, you know, well, what kind of audience are you after? And you gave me one of the greatest quotes of all time, which you probably forgot, and you said, any bugger with an ear. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's – um, I think I'm sort of paraphrasing um, the, one of the guys from Mojo. Yeah. Um, I, I won't use the actual term – that he used, but yeah. they went to America, New York, and they were pitching for the Coca-Cola um, com- mm. uh, account. Good, good so account. he's in New York, and uh, Mo and Joe are in New York, and uh, they're with you know all these big shot American advertisers, and they're going. And at one point, they've they've done their presentation, and someone leans back and says, "So." Mo, tell us, uh, you know, what psycho, you know, uh, demographic are you? And he has, uh, any bastard with a mouth? <laughs> but he didn't say bastard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't go there. We won't go there. Gibbo, um, one voice of yours I always love, and I, I, I don't know whether you've done, done it publicly, was you're a, basically your impersonation of John Mellion. Uh, the great John Mellion, that VV commercial. Can you still yeah. do that? You can get it. Uh, uh, you can get it. Walking a plow. <laughs> you can get it. Reading a book. All worrying a chook. <laughs> the cold hard taste of VV. Matter of fact, I got one now. <laughs> Gibbo, tell, tell us this before we wind up. When did you realise you actually did have the ear and the capacity to really reproduce somebody very well? Because everyone can do Bob Hawke. Ah, yeah. but, but you. But when did you realise you had some kind of competitive advantage? Well, in that well, well you're going to love this, uh, Switz, because we're both uh, Waverley old boys. Yeah. And it was literally doing teachers. <laughs> I think a lot of guys like me, you know, start, you start at school. That's I true. was I was by no means the class clown, mm. but in the playground I could mimic teachers, but not just mimic their voice, but kind of their their actions, their actions mm. and their and 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 the things I could I could extemporize about the you know getting to their heads and going this is the way they're probably thinking and mm. I was doing kind of little shows at lunchtime you know yeah yeah, yeah. about a lot of uh, Christian brothers that we uh, we both know that won't mention yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so mate it's been fantastic catching up with you do you think there's anything any good question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you um what are you doing now yeah. Yeah, what's the what's the outlook for Dave Gibson? I don't know. I really don't. I'm, I'm sort of I, I left voiceovers and I kind of lost that parking spot. Mm. But I'm I'm slowly getting back into it. Mm. So because you were doing a review, um, I was doing a live show called Senior Moments yeah. at the beginning of 2020. And the we, coronavirus got in the way. We the we got we got six weeks of an eight week run in, but then the, the, well the theatre shut down. Mm. Not this year, but maybe the next year we'll do that again. Maybe for a longer run. But mm. but I, you know, voiceovers are, are, are looming again. So uh, I'm doing um, uh, Roy and HG. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm doing on the, uh, on the ABC. Bludging on the blind side. Oh, yeah. now Roy, let let her rip HG. <laughs> so I'm I'm doing that. Yeah, at the moment. Good. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm sure anyone out there who um, uh, remembers how great you are. Rather than were, yes, um, should should always think of the name Dave Gibson if they want to do something of a highly creative nature because you are 
a legend when it comes to this sort of thing. It's quality you can trust. <laughs> Thanks, David Gibson. Thanks, Ritz. Well, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor, and this time the sponsor again is the Switzer Organisation. I want to tell people who've been watching our Monday Investing Show, and we've got about seventeen to 20,000 people watching that show on a fairly regular basis. We've now made the Investing Show on Thursday not just about property, but we have a lot of um, fund managers and CEOs of various companies, and we're introducing companies that you might be interested in, and also we're having probably what I think is the best and most important property story of the week. So that's on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com, Switzer Media, and you'll find the various programs. It goes out Monday and Thursday nights. Well, joining me now is Charles Cameron. And I want to talk to him about the Fair Work Amendment. This is a very important bill that the uh, Parliament uh, has been looking at over the past few weeks. And I just want to get a feeling and understand how important it is and what kind of uh, achievements were hoped for and what actually happened. So Charles is the perfect person to answer these questions. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Peter. So i got an interesting question for people who don't know you, Charles. Who is Charles Cameron and what is the RCSA? <laughs> a mouthful is probably the uh, way to answer that, mate. But um, like all good industry bodies, a, a great acronym never goes astray. Um, Charles Cameron's the son of a farmer who uh, really in the modern age, I think, is somebody who's really passionate about getting the, the right balance uh, of flexibility and responsibility in the workplace. Um, my background is... Yes, industrial relations on one hand, but business owner on another hand. And I'm particularly passionate, Peter, about uh, ensuring that uh, Australians are empowered to capture opportunities uh, as we grow and see change. And um, in the world of work, uh, which I represent, uh, we're particularly keen to make sure that it's not all about fear. Um, change presents a huge number of opportunities. So um, Charles Cameron uh, is somebody who really likes to look for the opportunities in the world of work uh, rather than uh, looking backwards and saying, hey, let's keep everything uh, the same as uh, it was when our parents worked. So uh, an opportunist uh, in the world of work is one way of describing me, mate. Okay, and RCSA? Yeah, the Recruitment uh, Consulting and Staffing Association, our members, uh, organisations that find people jobs, place them into jobs. Uh, they come in all forms. They can be headhunters and uh, recruitment firms that supply uh, executives, uh, uh, locums, uh, health workers, engineers, for example. But on the other hand, it's uh, also uh, what you might describe in blue collar as labour hire, right through to professional contracting and uh, temp work. So mm. in many ways, it's, uh, I guess, even the, the original gig economy, Peter, uh, but uh, of course, it uh, as an industry commenced back in the 60s and it's evolved quite considerably since then. What, what was the standout? participant in the gig economy in those days? Well, you've really got Kelly Services, an organisation that came over from the US. It responded to the huge demand for uh, temporary workers in the uh, secretarial pools, mm. uh, those things that probably don't exist anymore, Peter. Um, but uh, it evolved over a period of time. Uh, uh, some of them described them as troubleshooters, really responding to uh, demands for uh, unique or large numbers of workers in a short period of time, i.e. Uh, we need the right person in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. And mm. uh, intermediate eateries came in. Uh, now you will uh, see those brands out as Hayes, Adeco, Programmed, uh, all those organisations that really make sure that we get uh, mobility of workers and uh, indeed help candidates find the work that they might be looking for. And probably importantly, mate, 
really trying uh, in this day and age to fit uh, work around life rather than life around work. Mm, that's, a, that's a really modern thought, isn't it, Charles? <laughs> well, it's really age. what people are demanding, mate, and that's yeah. uh, what we're pretty keen to respond to. Okay, so let's go to this. What was the Fair Work Amendment, in brackets, supporting Australian jobs and economic recovery, Bill 2020? Another mouthful, mate. Yeah. Um, look, um, they called it the IR Omnibus Bill. Uh, mm. In simple terms, uh, it was a tweak to the industrial relations system. That's what it was meant to be. Um, last week, uh, they couldn't get the whole bill through uh, the Senate, uh, which uh, I'd love to talk to you about because mm. I'm a little bit concerned about our political structures and whether they're going to set us up for uh, being competitive into the future, Peter. Uh, but uh, in essence, it was an attempt to tweak the Fair Work Act, a, a piece of law that was created under the Gillard government. And mainly what we wanted to do uh, right across business is see access to enterprise agreements made simpler, um, to hold bad employers, those who uh, rip workers off, uh, hold them to account where they're doing it deliberately. Uh, and importantly, also really try and make it simpler to understand who is a casual employee in the modern era. Uh, there's obviously a lot of talk. We go back to this concept of the gig economy. We talk about flexible work. We talk about the fact that people aren't working like their parents did. We really needed to uh, come up with a new definition of casual work that was more reflective of uh, how people live and work uh, in the modern era. And another really important for us, uh, one for us, Peter, was the, uh, the removal of this concept of double dipping, uh, which was introduced by the federal court back in 2018 that basically said that even when an employee gets a casual loading of 25%, they can still go off and uh, seek uh, annual leave and sick leave payments on top of it. And that was a real worry for small and large business, mate. Okay. So why don't we go and, and, and get a few things sorted up first of all. Are, are the people who are terrorising me on the footpath carrying f food to lazy people who won't go to the shop and get it themselves, and I am being facetious here saying that, <laughs> um, are these people working for Uber and Deliveroo and Menulog, are they, they're workers in the gig economy, but are they casuals? Yeah, really good question. And here's part of the problem. The average uh, punter out there doesn't actually know the difference and um, everything gets thrown into this big category of uh, you know gig worker and otherwise, and some love them, some hate them. Um, the bottom line is that the majority of those workers, uh, you might call uh, uh, rideshare uh, operators, they're, they're actually not casual employees. They're not even employees. They're engaged as independent contractors. And there's a big debate around whether they're genuine independent contractors. Most of them operate under an ABN and they don't, and this is something that we're concerned about, they don't have rights to superannuation, they don't have rights to workers' compensation. In a lot of cases, they have limited rights to work health and safety as well. Mm. So that's one category. At the other end, of course, you can also see what you might call a gig worker working in the professional segment. And um, many of these individuals, so they've probably got the back-end capacity to manage their affairs and to go and get additional income protection insurance and the like. So you've really got two ends of the spectrum in that gig worker space. But let's talk about casual employees. They are employees. They have rights to super. They get workers' comp. They get award entitlements, leave loadings, overtime, you name it. Yeah. The only thing that they probably don't get uh, is typically uh, a period of time where you get paid to take leave, i.e. sick leave and annual leave. But that's what gets wrapped up in your casual loading of 25%. Okay. So what was the big goal? The 
the real big win that the government was going for that you guys hoped they would get across the line in Parliament? Look, number one was to remove double dipping. Uh, this idea that you can get a 25% casual loading and then go and uh, I, I guess have the cherry on top by saying, even though I've got this loading, uh, which has always been accepted as payable in lieu of annual leave and sick leave, I can go off and say, well, if I've worked regularly and systematically, I can actually go and claim I'm a permitted employee and get annual leave and sick leave. And by the way, I don't actually have to go back and pay back my casual loading. That was number one. Uh, estimates of $37 billion accrued liability for business that hadn't done anything wrong. Really, it was the federal court that changed the rules back in 2018. People, Peter, had been working uh, in accordance with uh, a very clear understanding of casual employment for, you know, 50, 60 years, and then it all got flipped on its head. The other one was to really get some clarity around what is a casual and when does a casual become a permanent employer? Because no business operator can properly operate and employ people thinking that they're casual um, and indeed the individual worker thinking that they're a casual, but then the court's coming along and saying, well, you got it wrong, they're really a permanent and you're going to have to make all this back pay. They were the key things for us. Okay, so given what you said, if I'm a rational employer and I've got a casual worker who's been with me for a certain amount of time, isn't it in my interest to know what amount of time I need to be mindful of and then I get rid of him or her before I can become susceptible to this classification of a it sounds like something out of a Monty Python script, a permanent casual. <laughs> yeah, look, um, look, I'll just pick you up on one sort of assumption there and that being that uh, you know, you're going to get rid of casual workers before they become classified as perm. Mm. I think when you've got a really good employee and they're doing a great job for you, you don't want to get rid of them. You just want to make sure you clearly understand how they should be employed and how you pay them correctly. Mm. Um, but look, the, the simple reality is that I, I do agree you know, with this notion that when somebody has been working for an ongoing period of time on a regular basis and under this new law, it will be 12 months, an employer has to go and offer them the capacity to convert into becoming a permanent employee. But Peter, the thing here is that the vast majority of uh, casual employees, when given that opportunity, they don't take it up. Mm. Why is that? They might like diversity, they like the flexibility, they like to feel like they're in control, and yep, they don't want to lose their casual loading, and they actually don't want to be told when they have to work. These are all the things that start changing when you become a perm. Um, in our industry, for instance, which represents agency workers, uh, that's around about, uh, you know, two and a half percent of uh, all workers uh, or employees in Australia, you know, those employees, only about three percent elect to become a permanent employee because they are actually making casual work and agency work work for them. So absolutely give people the right to convert. And this new law does that. What's one of the key things that was introduced in this law, this IR omnibus bill, Peter, that people have really overlooked because of all the political hoi polloi. Mm. Now, what you made a reference earlier to the Senate and um, you, you had two flies in the ointment. I, my early reading was the crossbench possibly and the Senate. But was it the Senate that ultimately stopped this, um, you know, the better aspects of this bill going forward? Well, I guess you could say ultimately, let, let's not forget that the Australian Labor Party opposed it um, right from the get-go, even yeah. though many of the provisions proposed within it were in line with their policy positions. Mm. The Green 
unions have posted as well. I don't want to let them off the hook because ultimately I'll put it to you, Peter, that when I first saw this bill, I thought this was a bill you would normally expect to be drafted by the ALP, okay? Mm -hmm. It was not a bill that you would expect to come out of a coalition conservative government. But then, of course, they opposed it, and I would argue purely on political grounds. You then end up uh, having to deal uh, with five Senate cross benches, okay? And essentially what we saw here is that Jackie Lambie basically, you know, she uh, uh, put her cards on the table and said that, look, effectively I'm not going to get involved in this, which I don't think is acceptable in this day and age. I think when you're, you know, a senator with uh, cross bench representation, you got to be in the game. you got to actually uh, determine things. Mm. Similar with Rex Patrick, he pulled out. So it came down to the two One Nation senators, okay, and also Sterling Griff uh, from Centre Alliance. Um, we actually found that the One Nation senators were really, really sensible. They had a really keen desire to get the balance right for small business and workers and ended up negotiating a sensible outcome there. And the whole bill could have got through with them. But Sterling Griff, who interestingly comes from an employer background, I think got spooked by the union movement who started making threats of uh, we will uh, rally against you, we'll campaign against you. And we were really worried that uh, Senator Griff was going to put his job ahead of thousands and thousands of jobs of individuals who would potentially lose employment because of this big uh, double-dipping liability that came through. It's a tough gig, though, isn't it, mate, uh, trying to uh, negotiate finer points as a Senate crossbencher. I don't uh, envy him at all, but I think there should have been a lot more compromise made to actually look for the bigger picture and the greater, I guess, value of this bill. Okay, so given the failure of it, does that mean that double-dipping still prevails? And give us an example of how that would work. For And I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on... Because there are a lot of people who employ people and they often pay over the award and they figure they're doing everything right. They've read basically the rules, but they might not be up with the changes since the federal court decision. Yep. So what is the situation now for an employer with casual workers when it comes to the, the threat of double dipping? All right. So the good news is for all of those uh, businesses that might uh, you know, not have an in-house lawyer or an in-house HR manager, um, the bit that did get through is the bit that overturned the double dipping. So the good thing here is that that got through, as did the provision about introducing a new definition of casual employment to make it a little bit simpler, not really simple, but a bit simpler for small and medium-sized business to know who is a perm and who is a casual Okay. Um, there are a whole heap of other things that didn't get through, which were, you know, to try and make it easier to actually make enterprise agreements, which is something that in our industry and uh, right across the country, we've been trying to promote more and more. Um, simplification of awards. You know, this crazy idea that if somebody does want to move to part-time employment from casual, which is, again, one of the main goals of the union movement and the ALP, um, they opposed that and it didn't get through. So what that means is that somebody does want to work additional hours as a part-time employee. Let's say they're working 15 hours at the moment. They wanted to go to 20. Under the current award system, unless you give a week's notice in most cases, you've got to pay overtime for those additional five hours, even though you haven't worked a full working week. This is the type of thing that just should have been the evolution of our system but got mm. opposed on political grounds. These are the things that simply don't make sense. So the thing that worries me here, 
Peter, is that the, the prize here is not what makes sense for people, not what makes sense for business, what not what makes sense for the country, but it's actually who just wins the political prize. And I'm really worried, mate, if we go back to your analogy before or indeed uh, your uh, point about people delivering food, we as a society is starting to have uh, a greater expectation to get the food when we want it, the healthcare where we want it, the services that we want whenever we want it, but we're not prepared to adjust the system of work and more broadly business law to accommodate that. And I actually think we're going to end up in a situation where our lifestyles actually catch up with us. But of course, the system of rule that is meant to design or to come in behind that has actually fallen way off the pack, off the back of the peloton. And that's going to be a really interesting time for us, Peter. Well, one last question, Charles. Is there a a movement, a force to try and redefine these gig workers, particularly the the people working for Deliveroo and Uber, as casuals? Great question. In the UK, there's a uh, a category of, uh, I, I guess, employment or work that sits between an independent contractor and an employee, and it's called a worker. So they have some of the entitlements of an employee. There's a, a push to try and get that introduced within Australia. Um, it's not there at the moment. Um, we, as RCSA, representing agency workers and recruiters, have been pushing for this for uh, many, many years. We feel that it's not appropriate to have especially individual workers with low economic power not getting benefits of superannuation, workers' comp, overtime, et cetera. So I think there is a happy medium. The thing I worry about is I don't think we've got the political system maturity to actually come up with a solution that gets the balance right. Um, If I could finish by saying one of the things I've adopted in my household for the last few years is I tell my kids, if you want food delivered by one of these uh, particular uh, uh, riders or, uh, you know, these apps, that's fine, but you must give them a $5 tip that actually brings them up to a level that I think is uh, really what an employee should receive. And this is where it needs to come from, I think, Peter. We really need to educate the consumer Mm. that they are the ones who ultimately determine whether this is a race to the bottom or whether we're going to have the right balance of lifestyle, flexibility and what I call responsibility in our society. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, uh, the digital disrupting businesses of the world have actually got away with too much and we need a few politicians with a bit of guts to bring them to book. So it's a fair working environment rather than the one that's currently prevailing. And I'm talking from a point of view of someone who employs over 25 people. So I'm not what you might call a lefty demanding that Sally McManus and the union movement get her way, her ways and everything. But I think that those workers in that gig economy that you're talking about, I think they are being played off a break and someone should do something about it. Could I raise one thing? I was speaking to a lefty the other day and um, when um, we were talking about whether gig workers should be uh, deemed to be employees, she actually said to me, oh, if that means that it's going to increase the price of food delivery, I don't actually want it. So you've even got this compromised position where people who are fully behind protecting workers, putting their own consumption interests ahead of it. And this is where we've got uh, a really, really tricky road ahead, I think. Well, as Paul Keating once said, if you go to the races and you see a horse called Vested Interest, back it, (laughs) back it, because you know it's trying. Oh, but it always comes home with the money, yeah. Yeah. Charles Cameron, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And that's the end of the show. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to catching up with you next week. 
Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>